welcome to the Keenan Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is Andrew Epler. Andrew was introduced to yoga by his father when the legendary Cliff Barber came to stay at their home for two months. So he was introduced at, I think, about 14 to Ashtanga Yoga. Subsequently that, he's practiced for about 30 years, predominantly under the tutelage of B.N.S. Iyengar, also a student of Krishnamacharya in Mysore, alongside Batabi Joyce. He trained at the same time. He's opened a studio in Oklahoma, the USA, and he's had that studio for probably for about over 20 years now. And more recently, he's directed the film Mysore Traditions in 2016. And it was about the traditions around Krishnamacharya and the uh, invention of the vinyasa practice we know today, as well as interviews with BNS Iyengar on his experiences there. He spent many years studying Sanskrit and philosophy in Mysore and on his own. And he's an advanced practitioner of Ashtanga Yoga. So, welcome, Andrew, to the Keenan Yoga podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Adam. Welcome. It's great to have you. It really is. Um, so, just give us a little bit of your background. How did you start to come into yoga? Um, well, I was uh, I was fourteen, and my father invited his old friend Cliff Barber to come and stay with us for a period of time. So. I was 14 and my father and I started practicing yoga together and I really have my dad to thank for keeping me in the practice. That, yeah, I did hear that story. It's amazing that, you know, you're, I can't imagine my own father um, <laughs> introducing me to yoga. And also, um, you know, it must have been amazing to have Cliff as a teacher, but, you know, um, you know, he's an incredible uh, presence, right? Well, he is. He is. He's been an inspiration of mine for many years now. And, mm, mm, mm. How, how did you, I mean, so from that point, did you immediately take up the practice and start practicing or was, was it a gradual? I mean, because you found, I don't need to say you didn't find Ashtanga straight away because I know Cliff is, a, you know, he was, you know, old Cliff, as he was called in Mysore. He was an Ashtanga practitioner, right? So you first of all came into Ashtanga and you just stayed there and, and, and carried on self-practicing or how did that go? Well, I, I did. I did. I, um, you know, Cliff came and stayed with us for two months and he taught my father and I primary series and then he left diagrams. And actually, we didn't even have diagrams in those days. We had a list of postures and um, I was looking them up in light on yoga. And I got a lot of them wrong. And, and I, I got to try a lot of poses that I wouldn't have normally tried an intermediate series because I, I was very unfamiliar with the names and mixed lots of lots of things up but um yeah cliff really inspired us and then my father's was always practicing discipline things and running every day and meditating every day so i i just enjoyed spending that time with him right so in, ter in terms of ashtanga um it's always been my background and my base. And I, I, I later on, like years later, came to 
really enjoy learning other styles of yoga and how, how they relate. And it, um, there's just so much out there. I, I feel like for me, Ashtanga is something like, like, like the, the set sequences that we practice. Mm. It, it, it's like if you were a classically trained musician, you would have to learn scales in order to, to, to practice yeah. your discipline. Yeah. And so I really love that repetitive structure that, that we have in the practice. I definitely don't think that that's the only way to practice or that it's even the best for everybody. Yeah, but, but for me, those, those re repetitive disciplines really create a hallmark in a stronger practice. Like you can see immediately the second the person steps on the mat or raises their arms, if they have that training. So it leaves a very distinct mark. And, and, and I appreciate that about Ashtanga. And you start, I mean, I suppose I just want to kind of clarify that, you know, when you were 14, that, that you continuously practiced from that age and you had a self-practice discipline. I mean, that's remarkable if you kept it up through teenage years, because I, I certainly dropped off the bandwagon at that point. Yeah. Thanks to my dad. Yeah. Yes. Right. Like I had somebody who I really enjoyed being around yeah, who right. was doing it and miraculously never turned me off of it by making me do it. My father kept me into it, and then I started traveling, and, and I met up with people like Cliff, like Danny Paradise, and David Williams, and Nancy Gilgoff, and so I, I, I'm as lazy as anybody, really, and as distractible as anybody else, but I had very good influences in, in my life that helped me to stay interested in the practice and, and that really set examples for me uh, of successful people who I wanted to, uh, to, to try to imitate. And so my uh, sustained interest in yoga, uh, I, I don't think is any real credit to my own uh, discipline or steadfastness, but, but more a credit to the great influences that I've had and the great teachers who have worked with me. Mm. And um, once you started practicing, obviously you maintained that discipline, but then you were never such a kind of um, a maestro aficionado in the, in the Batavi Joyce tradition. I think you know, you're kind of well known to have gone to be in Iyenga quite a lot, right? Yeah. Now, he was yeah. your foremost. And Iyenga, for those that don't know, he's a, um, he was also a teacher in the Krishnamacharya lineage. Um, also from Mysore, taught along. I, was he taught alongside Batavi Joyce? I don't believe he taught alongside him, but... Um, at, but taught as a student at the same time, that's what I meant. I'm, I'm sure they didn't teach together. <laughs> no, I, I, the way I understand it, and, right. and, it, and these histories are, are a little bit vague, yeah. and the Indians are touchy when you start trying to uh, dig that stuff up, but... Oh, right. I believe that my Guruji actually studied asana for 12 years with Patavi Joyce. Right. Hmm. And I've observed him always lighting incense in front of the picture of Patavi Joyce in his shala. Huh. So uh, I know that, that Guruji studied for several years with Krishnamacharya uh, prior, and then Krishnamacharya left Mysore in the, I think, 
I don't want to say dates because I'm not. <laughs> Forty. Um, what? Forty. I, that's about right. That's, yeah. that's what, um, I was, what I was going to say. So, so Guruji studied with with Patavi Joyce for some years, and um, and he teaches primary. So so, what I found is that everybody who studied with Patavi Joyce teaches primary or something quite like it. And, and, and that really is his work. So, so I think that that's, that's the answer. If, if we're looking for where, where did this person study a lot. Right. So you think BNSC Enga learned the primary series off Batavi Joyce? I do. I, right. I, I, okay. Okay. Um, I mean, it's kind of documented now that Batavi Joyce Kind of synchronized it or synthesized it with um, with Krishnamacharya. I think in in they, they kind of did it together. Is that correct? Well, if you speak to senior students, you know, like T R S Sharma, who's right. a wonderful man, um, he says that you know, and he was there. He and he in fact was the kid who. Um, Krishnamacharya was standing on yeah, in yeah. famous picture. Okay, he, he was, he was yeah. the it's a famous picture of um, Krishnamacharya standing on the quite a young child, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> perhaps too young to be still in Kapitasana, um, and he's got his whole um, kind of um, uh, teeth. Well, how do you call it? He, all his students around him. Yeah, yeah, famous picture. Right. So he. So so and and T S Sharma says. He says that he didn't teach fixed sequences in, in the way that, that Ashtanga Yoga does now, that it was more open than that. He was very particular about Surya Namaskar. He was very particular about certain combinations and, and about vinyasa. He, he, he was very structured with the breathing and the movements of vinyasa, but he was much more open to innovation and and exploration of all kinds of different postures. And so Sharma insists that that's the case. And when you when you study with BNS Hanger, what you see is that he has a broader sort of asana base and context than just primary series. And it, it becomes clear that primary series evolved out of a, a wider body of practices. And and I, I think it's brilliant, of course, and, and it's certainly been my foundation. I, I don't have any um, anything to say against it, mm-hmm. apart from th- that a given individual sometimes has injuries which arise and blind adherence to, to this mm-hmm. sequence doesn't result in overcoming the injuries. It results in exacerbating them. And, and so there's an unfortunate circumstance where people give up on Ashtanga yoga and yeah. decide that it's dogmatic and not for them because of that rigidity and, yeah. and, and this association of sequence of posture with parampara. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I find that to be particularly. Yeah. Some kind of, um, I always say a kind of holy combination lock. You do everything right in the right sequence at the right time, then something out there will happen to you, you know? Um, well, I, it does, but it's usually a knee injury. <laughs> okay. exactly, yeah, right. exactly. Um, so I'm kind of interested. I mean, I've met you o- over the years. I, I never really asked you um, 
how you got an into studying with with your how you say your guruji uh, uh, bnseing how you met him and why you chose him and went that way which is quite unusual in the ashtanga sphere which gravitated mm. towards patabi joyce in, in my soul how did that because cliff was a patabi joyce student so well, my, my first visit to Mysore, I did study for three months with Patavi Joyce. That was in mm -hmm. 1990. And then the next time I went, I, um, I, I was just a, a, a kid with a backpack and I didn't have a lot of money. And I, somebody had told me that, that BNS Rangar was there and teaching. And I decided to give him a go and, and, and check him out. And he just charmed me. I, I just fell in love with the guy. I, I didn't stay with him because I uh, was unhappy with Patabi Joyce. Or, I mean, there were things right. about right. Patabi Joyce's Shala that I didn't feel comfortable with. But, but I can't say that I had some highbrow moral uh, aspiration yeah. or, or something. It just money. Finances. But Guruji really took time to talk to me one-on-one -on -one about philosophy, about worldview, about life. And, and he inspired me. And by the time I left Mysore that, that time, first time with him, I think I was there for two months, he had just made such an impact on me that, and, and well, the thing is, he speaks English. And and you can and also you were in a room with just just I mean there was a lot less students around him right I mean probably a few of you right or maybe yeah. even just you sometimes. there were times when it was just me yeah yeah and and I would sit with a straight spine and and I would have two or three good solid questions to ask him and I would take notes and I realized very quickly that if I did that and that I could get him to speak for indefinite lengths of time and. So I just knew that I had really discovered a gold mine and, and that I wanted to study with this person and that you, you can't dig many shallow wells. You've got you to go deep with somebody. Yeah. yeah. And for me, he was that person. I think, I mean, you had the experience with him that the older students would have had with Sabi Joyce, like, um, you know, David Williams and maybe even Cliff, where they were just alone with, you know, obviously Sabi didn't speak that English, which was you know, difficult and resolving some certain issues with the translation of, of terms, you know, as well, whereas you had a, you know, a fluent English speaker, which was, yeah. you know. Yeah, he, he used to make fun of <laughs> It's a, a whole other level of humor that arises when they actually speak English. And, uh, <laughs> right. But just for um, the listeners, how does what he teaches differ from maybe what they know in Ashtanga Yoga? Um, primary series, intermediate series. Is it exactly the same or what BNS teaches? Almost. Primary really is almost the same. There are a couple of minor differences. He steps to the left and not to the right. right he interprets the left and right side of various postures like Marichasana differently. He His vinyasa is a little bit different. And, and you know, I often compare it to going to, to uh, foreign teachers, Western teachers, they're going to teach the same thing, but nobody teaches exactly the same thing. They all have little nuances and emphases that are different, and th th no two people can teach exactly alike. But mm. but in terms of material difference, th those are are 
the, the main ones. And now his intermediate series, it varies a bit more. It, 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 it has some other postures into it. Um, but advanced was never really um, so fixed. He, he would just come into the room with this dazzling smile and tell us he's, he's going to give us a really difficult pose. And then he would, he would think something up and we would all try it and have a laugh. And, and I, I think the main difference yeah. that I, I would point out with, with BNS Hangar is that he never was interested in stopping anybody because right. they couldn't do a pose. He, he would stop you when he saw you just tired and spaced and staring at the wall and lost your rhythm. Then he would look at you and say, you know what, you need to finish. But as long as there was interest and enthusiasm, he never made anybody feel like they were inferior because they couldn't do a pose or they shouldn't go on and keep practicing and trying different things because they couldn't do one particular posture. So that, that is the main difference is that he never was interested in holding anybody back. He loved enthusiasm and, and he still teaches to this day. In the He's still teaching. Way. I was going to ask you, is he still teaching? I'm going to go yeah, see him. <laughs> the world's oldest living teacher of a start of Nyasa Yoga that I know of. And is it, where, where in Mysore is he teaching? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> well, he's been teaching at Mysore Mandala. Right. Um, but with the pandemic, I, I don't know currently if he's back to teaching yet. Okay. Um, on, a, on a kind of more serious note, this maybe conveys a different, a definitely different view of tradition than um, and, and a looser view of tradition than a lot of people have inherited from the uh, Patabi Joyce School of Mysore, right? Where you have the whole parampara that, you know, originally the yoga... You know, it was yoga karunta handed down on banana leaves and those somehow got eaten by a rat somewhere in the Calcutta library or, you know, latterly, you know, it was, you know, kind of agreed upon or at least acknowledged that it was, a you know, a synthesis between at least Batavi Joyce or maybe in conjunction with Krishnamacharya. But you have this this different context, you know, having studied with BNS. So what what are your takes on tradition now the the, the benefit of tradition and what, and what does tradition mean if it's not a literal passing down of um, an exactitude an exact method parampara mm. uh, as defined by the sanskrit scholars at, at maharaja's college is that which is passed down from generation to generation so it could be in a family line. It could be in a guru-disciple succession. But the thing that's passed down is, is usually a philosophy, a worldview, a code of ethics and behavior and um, spiritual practice. So never in the history of India has parampara amounted to a sequence of postures. That's simply not what it means or what it is. Uh, and it's a very overly literal and naive way of, of understanding parampara. So a guru or an acharya is supposed to spend time and impart his worldview and way of life 
to the students. Is the worldview a particular philosophical school of, of looking on, you know, darshana? Is it in one of the darshanas or is it more broad than that, like a kind of general feeling about life or you know how, how I, I think it's both I think we can say it's both you know you know I I brought Buenos Sayangar to America and he lived with me for a month like in my house and we <laughs> we had all sorts of times together um, but okay when you speak about Mysore Yoga Parampara amongst elders and scholars and spiritual teachers in, in Mysore they talk about the spiritual lineage that Krishnamacharya comes from, came from. And, and it, it's so funny, all this emphasis on, on, on Parampara, it, it became more like a pyramid scheme, in my opinion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The kind of a bastardization of Parampara, which is really, in its essence, it's the love and respect that goes from teacher to student, and 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 the blessing and support that mm-hmm. that the student receives from his teacher or her teacher, and and it's this beautiful thing that was never supposed to be about money or status or anything like that. So, Mahesh Yoga Parampara, you know, Krishnamacharya was a Vaishnava. And he was an Iyengar, in fact. And he followed, as all Iyengars do, Vishishtadvaita of Ramanuja. And that that particular lineage goes back about a thousand years. Ramanuja lived about a thousand years ago. And it's often referred to as Natamuni Sampradaya. Because Natamuni is in that that lineage as well. And it all goes back to a sage called Namalva, who was the sort of original founding father of their, their parampara. And they're bhakti yogis. They're not really hatha yogis at all. They're, they're, they're bhakti yogis. And, the and that, didn't, he didn't teach asana. There was no asana included in that. Not until Krishnamacharya. Right. Mm. And, and just as an aside, BNS Iyengar, he, he was teaching you that view as well, the, the philosophical view along with the asanas in your training, right? Yes, I mean, I think that's one critical part to, to this is that, I mean, you had an experience where you could have one-to-one kind of, I mean, we would call it transmission or at least interrelation. So you could get this, this, uh, this energy from him and, you know, and, and then go on to pass it down, which is that became increasingly difficult, obviously, with Patavi Joyce and the Institute, with the huge numbers of people, how would, how would that energy be correctly trans- transmitted, you know? Yeah, well, I was just lucky, uh, honestly. And, 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 you know, Patavi Joyce was a masterful asana teacher. He, he, he may not have been, uh, you know, he, he, he did naughty things, and uh, I, I saw them. Okay, I'm not gossiping. Okay. Like, you know, and when I saw that, I I thought, well, this this guy can't be my spiritual teacher. This isn't going to happen, uh, you know. But give credit where it's due. He made a huge impact and contribution to modern yoga. His sequencing and his approach to the practice really impacted a lot of lives. It wasn't all bad by any means, and I really respect what he did. And there's a reason why all those people were attracted to him. Um, and you, I mean, obviously, I, I've kind of said my synopsis of how the sequence came about, but you, you would know. I mean, 
obviously you've done the, the the fantastic film. I mean, you would know better than me how that sequence came about. Was it Batabi Joyce's work or was it a, a combination of people's work? In I think it all is a combination of people's work. Um, I, he definitely got a lot from Krishna Macharya and, and, but he was in charge of doing demonstrations. And when you do a demonstration, what you need is to have a plan and to get everybody to do the same thing at the same time. And I, I think that, that a lot of this kind of evolved out of that, that sort of, sort of circumstance. So Pratabi Joyce was a genius in, in a manner of speaking. But what I loved about BNS Hanger was his humor and, and his, I felt like he opened a worldview to me. What, my personal point of view, okay, is to cut, cut to the chief, is we went over there, David Williams and those early people, and learned this practice. And then we did it for about 40 years. I, I'm, I'm one of the students of those early people who, who went. And, um, and what we saw was tremendous strength and, and evolution of people. And we, we saw, but it was a mixed bag. It ruined relationships, it destroyed careers, it destroyed bodies, it, it, it caused massive influxes of ego and control and sexuality and, and Hatha yoga, which is what this really is, is, is a dangerous and volatile method. And, and so it went into the hands of these really just young hippies. Mm. And, and they did different things with it. Mm. Some good, some bad. It was messy. Um, but after so much time, when I made the film and I gained access to this community, I, my first question was, guys, we, I think we got this asana stuff. Like we really, we're, we're doing it better than you. <laughs> But what should we do now? <laughs> like, what is the next step in, in all of this for us? Mm-hmm. And that's when they start talking about karma yoga and, 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 and getting into the philosophy of yoga. And yoga isn't just whatever we want it to be. It, yoga is one of six darshans. It's one of six classical Indian philosophies. It has structure and, and it's been that way for a long time. And, you know, we can call it, you know, this is my yoga, Andrew's yoga or Andrew's yoga view. But, but like there are texts about yoga. <laughs> you can't really bend that around too far. You can try a bit and we all do. But, but, but classical yoga is this beautiful way of seeing life. And um, the Surya Namaskar is, it, it, for me, it, after you know all of it, a prayer that the bright good thing in me is gonna win against the stuff that, that brings me down. Um, I, I, I went over there and by luck and chance and good fortune, got to interview a lot of the Sanskrit community, including the principal of the Maharaja's College and the Queen and and um, these these very impactful personalities. And 
they said different things, but a lot of what they said was the same, which is just that Western people are obsessed with their bodies and they're, they're using asana to enjoy their senses more. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you do all this yoga, of course, you, you, you can enjoy more chocolate and more sex and more anything fun and yummy. And, um, and, and that became the, it's kind of ironic, it's, it's ironic, isn't it, when yoga was originally formulated about sense restraints, that it's going to be taken <laughs> sense indulgence in a kind of opposite light. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So um, do we need to learn philosophy alongside the asana then? I guess that's an obvious question in the light of, uh, of what you've just said. But um, no, I mean, yeah. how would you, how do you, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you've been teaching many years in Oklahoma. I mean, do you, do you impart the philosophy alongside the asana? How does that work? Because, I mean, not many students necessarily would sign up for that if I started giving them as, mu- as much philosophy as I did postures. <laughs> no, they don't, they're not interested in it, actually. So exercise is great and asana is great. Um, it, I mean, how long can we teach these these sets of sequences? But I, I try to give people what they what they like and what they want. Come in, inhale, exhale, do this, do this, leave, feel better. And the but but asana is a fantastic gateway drug. It, it just is. And it, it alters our perception of life to such an extent. We've all had that experience where we, you know, went into class feeling kind of blah and not necessarily mm. so great. And we mm. left just feeling on cloud nine. And it lifts us up and it gives us this beautiful experience. And it's so different from when before you did it to after you did it that we question, well, gosh, my perception of life obviously just changed. Life didn't change. It was my perception of it that which changed. And if it can be that radical of a shift, shouldn't I look into this more? And that starts the whole ball rolling. So, so what I try to do is to infuse philosophy into the teachings and not not bore people, and I don't always succeed, mind you. I, I sometimes say more than I, I should, and I think I, a lot of teachers... How, how, do you, how do you infuse it in? Because, I mean, I suppose, as you mentioned, the question comes to my mind in teaching as well, is like, well, you've got this quite potent tool, but as you previously said, I mean, it was in the hands of people, and, well, it's like, a, you know, putting a race car in the hand. It could be, you know, it can be a great tool, but it can, you know, you can really do a lot of damage with it, right? getting you know getting more confident getting stronger getting more energetic in the body it's like you know giving someone enough rope to hang themselves in a way isn't it you know well, so, they did <laughs> but, well yes right literally or metaphorically so you know so uh, you know how, how do we you know i mean as an open question how do how does one encompass or contextualize the asana so it's taken in the right spirit because obviously one's feeling great but or you can do what you want with that feeling right Absolutely. Well, for me, in my in my humble understanding, mm-hmm. Sankhya is the other side of the coin from yoga. Sankhya is the philosophy of yoga, and yoga is the practical application of Sankhya. So in Sankhya, of course, there's Prakriti and Purusha. 
And as you probably know, you know, Prakriti is made of the five elements and the five elements correspond to the five senses. So when we are all about gratification of the senses and, and I, I like coffee and I like everything that's yummy and tastes good and feels fun and whatever. But when that is the primary goal, a person remains emerged in the material life. And you can go up to pranayama and not get out of that range. You can be a superpowered jerk with the same problems you had before, just a lot more energy to execute your maneuvers. Yeah, that's kind of what I was aiming, uh, aiming to say. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you, so, you, so you say you need the philosophy then to, to kind of kind of get above that. Well, Purusha is symbolic of the sun and the soul. And the soul is defined as that which leaves at the time of death. You, you, if you've ever experienced death, and, and you know, if you live long enough, you probably will, the body is there, but the person's gone. And, and you have to ask yourself, what is that? And where did it go? And what, what, you know, this is a fundamental human question that every, everybody who's ever lived has, has encountered. And so that is Purusha. And identification with Purusha instead of Prakriti and discrimination between the two is classical textbook yoga. And, and, and we, we, we can't really slide around that one. And, and you, know, you can try and you can ignore it. You can just do your postures and, and your breathing and whatever, but sooner or later, the pain of life comes in. And, and how we deal with it is, is a question. So the Abhyasa Vairagya ideas from the Bhagavad Gita, the idea of Shtita Prajna, the, this stable awareness, mm, mm. all this stuff, it, it, it comes, comes to the forefront. And Patanjali actually is teaching self-realization. It, this is what all of the Vishishta Advaita people say. So before you can realize something beyond the self, you have to get into self-realization. Bhakti for them actually happens after self-realization. Hmm. Up until then, you, you can chant Hare Krishna. You, know, you, can, you, can, yeah. you can practice bhakti yoga and, and get a harmonium or whatever, but until you get to self-realization and really like fall in love with the self, how are you gonna? You don't really mean it. Yeah. Love the universe as a whole, or God, yeah. or, or go, go into yeah. deeper yeah. elements. So, can you practice yoga without philosophy? Yeah, of course. How does but, the asana relate to developing something more? You know, how does the asana fit into this this schemata? I think it's between it, uh, between developing uh, discrimination between purusha and prakriti. You know, matter and and uh, soul. Well, Ashina is con concerned with opening the energy channels of the body. That, that's, that's what it does. And, and it, it affords these energetic experiences that we all have. You know, you, you have a good practice and you lie down in Shavasana and you just feel all this energy coursing through your body. It's not ordinary laying around. It's, it's this exquisite experience. And, and slowly you go from anamaya kosha to pranamaya kosha and you start to experience this energy. 
And that is Purusha. It's the elements of Purusha become a, a, obvious to you. And, and, you know, before you've experienced it, you can talk about it. It just doesn't make any sense. And after you've experienced it, it's a very obvious thing. So I don't think we can skip asana. This is another question. Some people yeah. feel like asana is just for, for arrogant youngsters and it, it's just a waste of time and, and it makes you attached to your body and foolish. And, and mm. I don't agree. I don't agree. I love asana and I, and I always will. And I'm going to practice it as long as my, my physical body will permit. Um, but in a hundred years, neither you or I are going to be doing this asana. Okay. <laughs> like at some point. Yeah. And if, if our, our success in yoga is completely tied with tangible physical abilities that we can demonstrate to other people, what we end up with is a bitter, sad experience of yoga because your personal identity and your self-worth and your whole effort in yoga is then attached to a physical shape and an ability that you have and, and that you can take a picture of and post on Instagram and demonstrate to other people. And the moment that you can't, your whole effort is in jeopardy and your ego is shattered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been through some horrendous periods of injury. In fact, when I met you, I was in one of them. <laughs> and so, so what matters most to me is stability of mind and, and quality of my day-to-day -day life. And, and how I'm responding and what, what am I able to give to the people around me? Am I giving them like arrogance and, and distance and separation? Mm. Am I angry or uncomfortable that I can't do my postures as well as I could the day before? Am I really present and there for them. And, you, you know, some of my best and most profound teachers are, are my children because this is a relationship of unconditional love and, and their pure young minds are, are very clear in a way. And, 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 and so raising my children has been like a second childhood for me. And I learned so much through that. Mm, mm, mm. So, so yoga is about relations and, and um, finding this bright, beautiful thing inside of us that's always been there. You can call it a soul. You can call it Jesus Christ in your heart. You, you can call it your higher self or whatever it is. But finding that and merging with it and staying in that bright, good place. And then yoga for me means all the practices and disciplines and behaviors and, and ideas that help you to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and we all get knocked down and we all, you know, life is super tricky, but yoga provides tools to, to navigate the difficulties that life brings. And that's what's so important to me and, and, and the elders in Mysore really speak to that. And, and, and like, I feel like we 
we got this Ashtanga yoga and this primary series. And, you know, it, it was like one of the crumbs that fell from the table. Because also they weren't, they weren't doing that. Were, I mean, most of the people that you would have talked to weren't even necessarily doing Hatha yoga, right? You know what? A lot of them did. They did. It, they did, right? Okay. Not, not, not 200 years ago. But but now, I mean, asana started in the 1930s in Mysore. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the people who are elders and teachers now, they did do asana when they were young. And they love it. And they're proud of this asana culture that came from their community. And, and so, you know, like, for instance, Bashi Mayengar, he, he was, he's the principal of the Maharaja's College. He's not now, but he was when we, mm-hmm. right. he was in Guruji's asana class when he was 10. Right. Like a lot of these, because it's in the culture of Mysore, a lot of the Sanskrit scholars did asanas when they were young and some of them keep it up. And, and so it's in the culture now. And you you can say that that Vishishta Advaita of Ramanuja does not have a huge asana emphasis. It, it's not even really concerned with it. But the culture in Mysore is very much exposed to asana practice. It is, and I think a lot of and that's what you an interesting thing. What you said is a lot of them did it when they were young. And then yeah. that's what I found that, you know, it's like, oh, yes, I did that, you know, my youth, you know, like when I had the energy and the, you know, the inclination to do that. And it's kind of like fe- functions as a starter motor to kind of, you know, as it did with me and probably you, right? Like, you know, like we're, you know, both physical guys and, you know, or, or you know, or women. And, you know, when you're young, that's your attraction, isn't it? Get out, do something energetic that you can progress with, that you can make, you know, it's great, you know, and, it, you know. And it definitely, definitely kept me, you know, on the straight and narrow a bit, you know, which is good as well, right? Like two function, you know, um, a bit of concentration, a bit of a sensible lifestyle. And, uh, and yeah, like when you're lying down at the end, you do start to feel to try and be the best sense of yourself rather than just be just <laughs> not. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> at a point, my question in this kind of ramble is at a point, isn't that a starter motor perhaps exhausted? And then what are we doing? Are we just entering, you know, in, ca- in keeping on practicing? Do, do you need to keep on practicing? And that's, right? Yes, you do. Um, as long as we are in this body, we have an option to cultivate it. And, you know, now if you ask the question like, should people in their 60s be practicing primary series? Well, that's very subjective. Mm. Some should, most of them probably shouldn't, etc. But in my work these days, I, I sort of relate to three main aspects of yoga practice. The first of them being yoga therapy. Yoga therapy is specific and it's directed at the individual. Mine cannot be the same as yours. We can use some of the same theories and techniques, of course, but your needs are not going to be the same as mine. So I think everybody has to develop some individualized, targeted techniques that really address what's going on with them. And when it comes to that, we're drawing on the whole world, all physical culture in the whole world. Any kind of body work, uh, 
dance, martial arts, acrobatics, gymnastics, you name it. Everybody knows something. And the whole world is trying to do yoga. And the whole world has the same problems. It's difficult. We can't do it. We have to work through injuries, et cetera. And so we use what we know. And what we know as the whole world is a lot of stuff. So this synthesized information is, is becoming available. And some people are changing yoga and developing yoga in very beautiful, intelligent, sophisticated ways. It, it's an explosion. And to deny that or push it back as not valid or not traditional is silly. It just is. So I love yoga therapy. Who do you like on that front? Oh, many, many people. Um, um, you know, Simon Borg, Oliver Olivier is, is an inspiration. And there's a bunch of great yoga therapists in, in, in Ukraine and, and Russia. Our, our Eastern European brothers and sisters have made huge contributions. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Yeah. they're generally quite disciplined and they, yeah. <laughs> what and they do. Europe, yeah. Europe and England. <laughs> Right there where you are, everywhere. Even in England. <laughs> Not even, like, especially. It, it, it's, it's so, Unspeakable. like, in the last 10 years, yoga has exploded, and, and yeah. this is beautiful to me. But now, on a practical level, um, Andrew, how do you, um, would you give examples of how you amend the series? Obviously, most of our listeners are, Probably uh, quite traditional as uh, in inverted commas, you know, or um, Ashtanga practitioners used to doing this series as is in Mysore. Uh, how how might you modify that to suit the demands of individuals? Can you give any practical kind of examples? Well, the first practical example is develop a 10 to 15 minute routine that you warm up with. Right. Elaborate a bit on that. Get yeah. all of your muscle groups firing properly. Wake up the lazy ones and soften the hard ones. That gives you a lot more ability to practice the series as is without making adjustments. Right. And then there's that incredibly articulate teacher that lives within all of us called pain. Now, when you have chronic pain, <laughs> you need to do something to get out of it. And no matter how much your rational mind wants to do this series, at some point, your animal mind will take over. And your animal mind does not like pain. It tries to get away from it, no matter what. So when we blow it by pushing too far and hurting too much, we end up hating yoga. Mm -hmm. So Western people who grew up living in chairs sometimes don't have the knees to practice primary series. I believe that the reason for all of these seating postures and hip openers and, and like seven poses in a row, nine actually poses in a row that work with our knees and hips is to get us prepared to sit with a straight spine so that we can have like a, an ability to meditate. But when that goes wrong, that would be one of my first times to amend it. I just take it out or just severely modify it. And, and I don't think... For me, in my teaching, that, that telling the person that they can't go forward until they get those hips and knees open is a constructive way to teach. I know. It's a great, great way to get them to go ahead and blow those knees so badly they'll have to get a surgery and they can never walk and all of this. Or never do yoga again. Um, yes, yeah, I mean, I know in asking this question, I admit it's not rocket science. Um, 
but it's just useful to have, have people say these kind of things like you in a, in a practical kind of way and it needs to be heard well also when it's divide and conquer let's say we can't put our foot behind our head then we have to start you know if we really want to do it we're going to probably have to build into it stage at a time we're going to have to open those hips we're going to have to massage some things that are too tight in the glutes we're, we're going to have to get out our lacrosse ball and roll around we're, we're going to have to really go into it and when you're practicing the series what i love about the series and what i cannot possibly negate about the series is you get into this trance you're not thinking about what comes next you're not thinking about your your meniscus or your this muscle or that muscle and this is what i hate about yoga therapy is that it's a purely intellectual nerd based kind of a thing and and this muscle and that muscle and the way it articulates and blah blah blah, blah. and that's not yoga that's about therapy so it comes down to the gunas for me Yoga therapy is Thomas Guna. It's working with the, the primal, basic clay of the body. Rajaguna is asana. And you move, you breathe, you sweat. You stop thinking about all that crap and get into the groove. And if something is screwing up your groove, just stop it and keep grooving. And, and, and eventually, like a lot of the things that were stopping you will go away. Mostly it's when our emotional body releases and we let go of old thinking patterns that were holding us back, then miraculously those knees open up. Mm. It might be a talk with your mother that finally <laughs> opens your knees, but it's not always so straightforward. Um, yeah. What it strikes me in what you were saying about, you know, getting out of the lacrosse ball and massaging and, you know, doing all this stuff in order to, you know, divide and conquer and get the leg behind the head finally. And, you know, when I work and, you know, <laughs> encourage or enable people to do this myself. But sometimes I even question, are we spending too much time in trying to kind of or body fixating on trying to do something where asana was for stability and, and general kind of comfort and ease in the body? What what is the reason for advanced asanas? What's the reason for advanced asanas for the leg behind the head for making advancement in the series? Are we over fixating? Are we going down the wrong line here? In your opinion, in many circumstances, probably. Mm. Yes, but I, right. I love leg behind the head, and I like to do handstands, and I, I you're very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoy those things, and and as long as I'm able to, I will continue to do them. Um, but the main difference is that I'm not dying to get to the next pose anymore. I, I've there's always another and another and another ahead of that, and. It's it's a carrot on a stick, and you're never good enough. Somehow, when you're in that state, you're you're always thinking, "Well, if I could only get to this, then I would just be this wonderful yogi." And then the moment you do, you immediately attach on another one and another one. That was your experience as well. You it's felt a state that of not enoughness, and hmm. and so like at what start do you start to practice santosha and and just say, "I am enough. I'm wonderful like I am. I, I have within me this beautiful world, and I can do so much. And I should be grateful for what I can do and quit worrying about what I can't do and get on with life. And And you've got to go beyond asana. If you stop in Rajaguna with all of this jumping around doing posture stuff, you miss sattva, which is 
where you go into trance and meditation and you start exploring who am I and why am I doing all this? And, and was, was there a shift in your practice then? I mean, you always struck me as such a humble kind of guy. I didn't imagine you chasing postures and identifying with your physical ability. But oh, I did. I knew. Right, okay, that was just a, was just a uh, you know a show. You know, <laughs> just a <Yeah>. stick. <laughs> the yoga teacher. <laughs> oh, so humble. Um, so you know, but I mean, have you felt a shift then? You know, from and is it just aging? Is it just that we're getting older that we you know we can't do this stuff anymore, so we have to shift? Or, or was there something that you was it through cultivating the philosophy or, or something that made you shift from this kind of constantly feeling not enough that you needed the next posture to, you know, kind of validate yourself to, to something higher with the yoga? You know, a lot of my shifts have come through talking with my teachers. And, and, and you know, this is one of the things about Guruji. It's one of the things about, you know, I, I study with Lakshmi Tadachara Swami, um, these guys just moved my heart so much, and and they really um, showed me the silliness of being all tied up with this asana stuff. And, and um, so, by the grace of my teachers, you know, and 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 through profound moments that just arise for me in in various. And I think I think all of us have it. Um, trance is one of the ways that people describe samadhi, and I, I don't I don't claim to be any realized person. Or you know, I'm sure there's levels of samadhi I can never imagine, but I don't think it's foreign to our nervous system. Yeah, and, and I, I think we all get into mm-hmm. little glimpses of of beautiful spaces, and when I'm in those beautiful spaces, I know that getting a little deeper into a posture or doing some more vinyasas is not going to make me happier. So I, you know, I don't like seeing postures slip away. I'm, I'll be 50 this year. So I, I've got nowhere to back up to. Like I'm, I, I have to work a little harder now and be more steady. I have to watch my diet more. I, you know, you can get away with things when you're 25 yeah. and you're 50. Uh, and and, that, and that's the, that's the most upsetting thing with getting older. Yeah, you, you can't you can't just eat quite <laughs> quite where you want anymore. You have to be a bit more careful. On that note, I just wanted. I mean, I'm conscious of you know taking your time up, and the format is an hour. What I mean, have you got anything to say on diet for people? Because it is a you know it's a, ma- a massive interest to to most uh, Ashtanga practitioners. Certainly, most people generally now. Well, I would say. I'm a staunch vegetarian, and I have been for 35 years. Um, I I adhere to that. I don't feel like, but you know, you know, worse than eating meat is is just eating all the chemicals. I, I'm you know GMO, uh, non-organic foods. Any, anything that's brightly colored, like gummy worms and some of the stuff my kids like, oh my God, mm-hmm. how did we get into this industrialized food? The, the, this is the, the big thing. So I think we're all different in our, in our constitution and in our dietary needs. But if you don't control the food, you won't go far with the postures. Right. Fact. Right. Uh, and, and so, so, 
the asanas, one of the great benefits of practicing daily and being steady with your postures is that your body will tell you when you have a horrible practice and everything hurts, you can look back and say, you know what? I really shouldn't have eaten that. And next time you won't because you got the message. And if you don't practice and you're not engaged in that level of sensitivity, then you don't get the message and you just carry on. Mm-hmm. If you do practice, your body tells you. And some people can drink coffee. Some people can't drink coffee. Some people can eat meat. Some people can't. Some people, you know, it's like whatever your deal yeah. is, go in there and figure it out. And, yeah. and if you think diet's not part of it, you're crazy. It is such a part of it. <laughs> so I, I, I don't have any like doctrine. Yeah, I personally yeah, don't like to kill other creatures to get something to eat. I have a, you know, I'm trying to get out of the, Rain, uh, the the ring of suffering and and birth and rebirth, etc. And so for me, like eating meat just really ties me to the material world. Mm-hmm. Everything eats something else. Like uh, even bacteria so eat another mm-hmm. living organism to get their life, and, and and that's fine. And and I don't, you know, I, one thing I hate is militant vegetarianism. <laughs> well, I was going to say that. What about your kids? I mean. You make them practice yoga and eat organic, you know, they eat like steamed cabbage and, you know, chuck out, chuck out the gummy worms and you find them in their, in their drawers. I mean, how do you you chuck out the gummy worms? (laughs) How how do you kind of, do you bring your kids up in a yoga life or do you think that's, you know, kind of feeding them a dogma which they should decide for themselves or, you know, do you know what I mean? Well, uh, this is not an easy question. Mm. Mm. I have a problem buying meat with my money because I feel like I'm using like money that I earn practicing yoga and teaching yoga mm-hmm. to pay for the death of another creature. So the, the lady, meat, the, the kids in my meat. mind, that's a problem, but they do eat meat and right. they're, they're, you know, my ex-partner, their mother, she eats meat. Right. And so what, you know, I can't march into their house and tell them what to eat. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, none of us can tell our children what to eat. Um, all we can do is try to influence them as positively as we can in our environment. So in my house, we don't eat dead animals. And my my money doesn't pay for dead animals. But are there dead animals in the world? Well, of course there are. And are other people going to eat them? Well, of course they are. And I'm not going to bother myself uh, and... I don't want my kids to feel like I judged them or made them to feel bad about engaging in these habits that are very common in our culture. So, so I think there's a place for just showing kindness. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, was, was it your dad that got you into vegetarianism? It was really Cliff. Right. Mm. We all ate meat when he came. And by the time he left, we weren't eating it. I mean, can you say anything about Cliff for people? Because Cliff is a you know kind of mythological figure. I mean, he's he's still he's he's, he's old now, right? He's still alive, and he lives um, as a hermit. I've met him. I mean, we didn't meet in Crete, but uh, I know you you do go down to Preveli and see Cliff. Um, sure. And he, he lives in he lives in a, in a small little uh, a kind of a area on, on a, an estuary that flows in from the sea in in, uh, in you know Crete in the south of Crete, and he's lived there, you know outside pretty much all year right for for, for, for yeah. many years yeah he has a kuliva and uh, he, he has a little hut that he goes in in the winter time yeah. and yeah. rebuilt it recently um 
he is a, a renunciate and he's very private and he he's mainly passionate about the study of mathematics and geometry and that is his particular form of samadhi or concentration he 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 draws and so he has these very steady hands and and this this you know he draws with a compass and a ruler and he draws these incredible elaborate mandalas that are very profound in their mathematical and symbolic significance and um, he ties in elements from the Kabbalah and elements from Plato and, and Greek philosophy and mathematics and many, many things. So Cliff, you know, he's one of the most courageous people that I've ever met, fearless. And um, he's facing old age and the end times, you know, he's, he's, I think he's 90 this year. Yeah. And he, he had some scary times with his health. And most of us spend our whole life preparing for that with pensions and flats that don't have stairs and, you know, how, how we're, how we're going to take care of ourselves in our old age. And here's somebody who has no shoes and no money and nothing. And yet, because of the power of his practice, he somehow has this amazing life and amazing people around him caring for him. And I won't say that he has no suffering in his life because every one of us has suffering in our life, whether we have a flat with no st mm. stairs or and a pension or whether we're just on our own in some Greek valley, uh, you're going to suffer. But, but I admire his courage and he's a great inspiration for me. And a lot of his views about yoga have stayed with me for for a long long time yeah he's not i mean i don't know whether he does he still let people come and see him and, and talk to people if he likes you yeah right yeah it was always a bit like that for many years i think <laughs> you know but um, yeah he's amazing i mean i'm not gonna um encourage everyone to go down and see him but i mean incredible character and he must have uh, yeah he must have uh, got the whip out when he saw you eating meat because i remember he was quite he's quite a uh, forceful as well as a you know in his oh yeah, indeed. Yeah. On that on that note, you know, I was fourteen when he came, and I had been trying to hunt deer for <laughs> some time. And while Cliff was there, I managed to kill a huge deer and drug it up on a horse. I had a small pony, and I had to tie this deer around the pony and drag it home. And he watched me um, butcher this animal. And um, the whole experience, actually taking the life of the deer, and of course I didn't know very much about how to butcher an animal at 14, and, and, and I, I spent three days messing with this dead carcass and, and all this bloody meat. And by the time I was done with that, I was so vegetarian. <laughs> I really got the message. <laughs> and I haven't eaten meat ever since. <laughs> So yeah, that that was. Uh, <laughs> a good way to, if you can get a beer, you know, a good way to convert people. Um, yeah, <laughs> I didn't have access. I mean, I you know, I didn't have such a glamorous conversion in London. Really, I didn't have a. There's not many dead, you know, or live deers wandering around that you can shoot and drag. I didn't have a pony. Um, <laughs> I could have maybe shot a pigeon or something and, and got the message. I don't know. Um, the, Harry, <laughs> uh, the Harry Krishna's got me into it, actually. Um, oh, they very. Uh, so, well, they had good food. They had good food, and, and they cooked for me. And I didn't know how to cook, so so you know if I 
you know, it was better than anything I could cook. And it happened to be vegetarian. So first of all, I'd go and have a, you know, a bit of a, a burger and then go and eat their, you know, their curry and stuff, you know, and then latterly, you know, I just kind of thought, you know, I don't really need that burger before. But I had this idea that I needed to fill up on meat, you know, like there was this idea in the car. Well, if I haven't eaten meat in a meal, then, you know, it wasn't a full meal. But anyway, um, I, I, uh, I don't diverse. Um, what is your understanding of the maestro tradition now this is my last question i really wanted to get this in in time uh, having done the interviews and done this incredible project uh, to when you to beforehand how has anything changed you know what was your kind of take home point in it you know well as as a student of bns you know as as we discovered i i always felt kind of like on the outside of, of the the mainstream of Ashtanga. And, and of course, I, you know, am not invited to those those very traditional shalas and, and always kind of felt like I wasn't in the club. And then I realized that my Iyengar, who I call Mr. Iyengar or Guruji, well, Krishnamacharya was an Iyengar too. And so are about, well, so is, Basha Mayengar, who was the principal of the college, and there are a bunch of Iyengars, Jayashri and Narasimhan are Iyengars. I didn't know any of that. And then I realized that I somehow belong, and 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 that uh, I and and my my fear or intrepidation about adapting the 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 postures, all of that just vanished. And I, I just started, like, I'm, I'm not imitating anybody anymore. I, I, I'm really just doing what I love and what I, what I believe in. And um, I, it, it set me free. And, and I realized that community service is really the spirit that, that gave us this practice, that the royal family of Mysore, if there's any, like, person who, who deserves the credit for, for this yoga it's the Maharajas, particularly Nawadi Krishnarajwadyar, but also his father and, and grandfather, they were all cultivating yoga in their community. These hip kings who were so generous and magnanimous, they were the ones that told Krishnamacharya, hey, you have to teach women. No, you, I don't care about caste. You have to teach everybody in the community. We want this in our community. Hmm. Those are the great people that are responsible, really, for, for this yoga. And so... How are they if, so minded I don't know. Hmm. They were just like that. The, you, you know, if you look at the accomplishments of Nawadi in particular, he built the roads, he widened the roads, he, he brought water from the... Kaveri River, he built the universities and hospitals and market and zoo. And I, I mean, everything in Mysore was built by that royal family. And so those people gave it to us. And, and Krishnamacharya was the person who executed the work, but they paid him and told him he had to do it. So when I realized all that, it made me want to try to help my own community. And, 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 and stop with the bickering about who's more authentic or who's endorsed by tradition. It's like we're all blessed to know about this stuff and to have it in our life. And who cares where you got it? Who cares who your teacher was? The question is, what are you going to do with it? 
And are you going to just worry about fighting with other people and who's more authentic? Or are you going to like get on with it and, you know, like do something for your community, do something for your family, go ahead and, and live the yoga and, and stop worrying about being validated by anybody's tradition. We're all valid. And, and, and the knowledge is what validates you and your behavior and your dedication is what validates you. It's not whether you've got a certificate or whether so-and-so told you you could teach. Teachers become teachers, in my opinion, when they've taught long enough and well enough that their students start referring to them as their teacher. And then maybe you're kind of a teacher, but in reality, we're all students. Mm -hmm. We're all just students, and some of us have been doing it longer. We can help those who have less experience. But if you stop learning, you're not really teaching. You're 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 just you're frozen, and and, and it's an evolving, lifelong, beautiful journey. This this yoga. So making the the film, and and then the ongoing lessons, because I I just asked to be taught and 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 i want to know the worldview of of the the culture that gave me these postures and because of my own history you know all i've done is yoga my whole life it's mm -hmm. it's been the most beautiful gift i want to share that i don't have anything more precious than that to share with with the world so that's that's my that's why i became a yoga teacher and um so Learning about learning more about the community of Mysore and and the kinds of philosophies and views and and how they see yoga really opened my eyes and my heart and helped me to just relax about a lot of these silly things that we argue about and um, get on with it. Yeah, I mean to say it's kind of contextualization doesn't do it enough of a service rather than to say it's like a developing a perspective, a wider and wider perspective, right? And, you know, having that, having that experience that you did was, was, well, you know, incredibly fortunate as well, right? To see. Yeah, to see and I, I want to mention my Mysore archives because I've been going, I've done two conferences now, Mysore Yoga Traditions Conferences every year in January, March. Well, this year will be in January. Last year was February, March. Um, this year is online, by the way, so right. it's accessible to more people. And then I, I've created an archive, including those original interviews that we made Mysore Traditions from, and we're putting together all the, all the talks that have been given in the conferences. And I feel like if anybody's really curious about this, Mysore culture and where this practice came from. Listening to all that will give you the perspective that I've had. Right, right. It, it, it's just there if anybody wants it. And, well, and where, can, where can we find that? It's on our website, ashtangayogastudio.com. Just look for the Mysore archive and um, you get a three day free trial. If you don't like it, you can always cancel. <laughs> so, um, all right. But yeah. Well, that's what, and then just, you know. Also, to clarify, that's where people can find you as well, ashtangayogastudio.com. Yep. Yeah. yeah, okay. Um, just a, a light ending note. What, what else do you like to do outside yoga? Is, 
<laughs> I like the garden. I like oh, to do yeah. construction. You know, I grew up with carpentry, so I'm, oh. I'm building a shala out here in the country. Oh, wow. Uh, land, and I like to play music and go for walks with my wife in the forest. And, uh, you know, just very ordinary stuff. Play with my kids. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really no different than anyone else. I think we all need outlets. And of course, I'm still still practicing magic. And Yeah, you're doing the magic still. I remember your magic, yeah. I was yeah. going about that. Yeah, you're still doing the magic. Right. I would say, I'll ask you to show me a magic trick, but I don't think it will translate to camera. <laughs> well, they're hard to do on a podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> well, so. thank, thank you, Andrew, for coming. Um, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for having me, and uh, all the best to you. Thank you. Thank you.